You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. I'll catch him singing Small Town on a Saturday night. This is the best part of the song. What's the hurry, son? Where you gonna go? That is a classic country and western song. How catch him. And uh, speaking of Hal Ketchum, joining me from uh, the Empire State is uh, Will Costantini. Will, uh, how are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, Digging out from about two feet of snow in the last two and a half, three days. But you shaved. It's a little challenging. You shaved, though. It's every other day. Really? Every other day. You're going to stick to that. You're going to stick to that now. All right. All right. Joining me from Southern California, the Nightingale himself. You know, there's a lot of people that um, that think that your Nightingale character is very humorous, Jeff, just so you know. Of course. <laughs> I'm Jeff Penny. I'm a rollicking guy. <laughs> He's a rollicking, frank human being. Um, Will, has some, uh, Will has some data. First of all, let's talk about data. Um, Will, um, what uh, what is your data source? Yeah, so I uh, I go on Powerline Vlog uh, every day. It's uh, Power uh, Powerline Blog, PowerlineBlog.com, and uh, every couple of weeks there's a guy that posts just a bunch of charts. Um, and in the charts, he cites his source, and they're always really interesting because most of them are counter-headline uh, narrative type of stuff. And uh, this week, uh, in fact, I think yes, yeah, today, February 3rd, he put one out. It's got about, oh, six or eight, nine, ten charts on, about six charts on climate change, a couple of charts on voting. Um and a few other things out there um, that are just, when you see it in a chart, you know, the picture is worth a thousand words. Um, but it's stuff that you won't see in the headline, that's for sure. Well, can you give us a uh, example? Can you give us, let's start sure. with climate change, because we were talking about that before we came on the air. And uh, I said, I made the mistake of saying, well, I mean, I do believe that's common knowledge. And uh, I was guffawed at by <laughs> by William, who derided me of that notion. So let's talk about climate change. Yeah, so the first chart in there, he lists the 10 countries with the largest reduction in CO2 emissions and the 10 countries with the largest increases in CO2 emissions. Over, and this is over a- what time frame? Oh, this is just in 2019, just one year's worth of data. So first, you know, this supposes that 
man-made generated CO2 is leading to climate change. That's what the, the theory is. Got it. And so the country that reduced it the most, of course, is the USA. Uh, in 2019, so this is pre-COVID, this is pre-economic slowdown. This is the height of the Trump years fracking energy independence in the U.S. And the U.S. reduced its CO2 emissions more than the next, looks like, eight or nine countries combined. The U.S. did. Even though we weren't in the Paris Climate Treaty. Um, and then it shows the increases. So China increased theirs probably more than the rest of the world combined in 2019. (laughs) That is so so rich. Yeah, and yet we need to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. We need to stop fracking. Um, We need to make climate change the number one issue in the entire government um i read a book you know about a month ago called apocalypse never and the guy in that book uh it was an environmental wacko growing up as a kid you know went to help farmers in guatemala while i was in high school and stuff and he comes around to the idea that these people who trumpet this and their solutions to it uh, are really about power and control uh, and fundamentally uh, the science of what they're doing is not relevant to them and uh, you know you can go down the next couple of charts the US carbon dioxide emissions per capita from 1970 to today has been reduced 50% um, electric power generation in the U.S. has gone, it's now 41% gas, 19% coal in the U.S. Uh, a switch from just 2004, 2005, when it was exactly the opposite. Um, the global death risk from climate and non-climate catastrophes uh, from climate-related deaths has been reduced to the exact same level as non-climate-related deaths. Climate-related deaths, they call floods, drought, storms, wildfire, extreme temperatures. In 1938, um, trying to figure out what the scale is, um, per million people, about 250. Non-climate deaths was about 35. Today, both of them are at about three. So as in theory, the climate has heated up in the last 80 years, your risk of dying from a climate-related event, flood, drought, storm, wildfire, extreme temps, has been reduced from about 250 chances in a million to about three. How does that fit the narrative, right? And yet, when you see a hurricane or a wildfire in California next year, people are going to go, oh, it's climate change. We need to do something. Global warming. Yeah. No, no, not global warming. That's passe. It's climate change. Oh, my so, bad. My bad. You and I would call that weather, but, you know, we're not as smart as the rest of them. Well, certainly not as smart as Jeff. Yeah, let me get one more, and then we'll cut Jeff in. 
I, so, mu- I muted him because there was some collide. Did you hear the collide music playing? It was good. Um, <laughs> the fuck? It was playing a Sousa song. That's what you expect from the guy. He's got a little wind-up thing on his desk to play John Philip Sousa oh before God. he goes to bed every night. So, so, in theory, climate change has led to more bigger violent hurricanes. That's the narrative, right? Yes, yes. Well, according to the chart, um, not true. Uh, the, the total global hurricane energy that they've tracked in the last 40 years. You look at it, and in the last 10 years, we've had two that are above the curve. And in the 20 years before that, we had about 10 that were above the curve. So in theory, as the planet is warming, and we're only nine years from becoming extinct, hurricanes have less energy in them. So... Yeah, data. It's interesting. Um, and it won't be spoken of on the House floor or by the energy czar or on the page of even the Wall Street Journal. Um, but there it is. Now, I'm not sure how to unmute Jeff. I muted him because I didn't want to hear the cloppy music. Because I'm doing, I'm doing my best to produce this thing better. Right, in spite of auto. Yeah, oh, there he is. I'm muted, me. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yeah, there's a garage band next door, and that's what you heard. Oh, okay. I thought Lori was playing her calliope. <laughs> no, Lori's calliope is for only for the early morning. <laughs> All right. All right. And it's, it's, it's the, uh, the Toreador theme to Carmen. Help me get out the door. See, just when you think he's a knuckle dragon moron, right? He pulls something like that out of his hat, and uh, I am a knuckle dragon moron. (laughs) Not with the. I'm like an idiot savant. But not with the torador. What'd you call that? It's the torador march from Carmen. We all heard it. Who knows that? Like what the hell? But you know the song goes. Hey, Toradora, uh, don't spit on the floor. Uh, use the cuspidor. Uh, so, uh, uh. We keep going. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm so. <laughs> I don't know the rest of the words. Damn, damn it. Um, the uh, it's stunning to hear the numbers. It's, I mean, even, let's just restrict it. Just the discussion of CO2 emissions, and I'm looking at the graph now on the Powerline blog and. Being, unlike these fools, being a, a major in economics, I actually know how to read a graph. And, but even if you don't, right, there's two lines that would catch your eye immediately. One is one heading to the left, and that's American, right, reductions. And the one, other one is going off the table. It's going off the chart and like onto the wall, right? And you look at that and like, who's that? Those are Chinese increases? Really? <laughs> and you're just like, wait a minute, China's like blasting the United States for pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord? We're all in. Like, and just like, get that out of here. I mean, it's comedy, right? But Will, as he does on occasion, under the guise of the sun shines on a dog's ass every once in a while, he made me think of something that um, 
Shelby Steele says in What Killed Michael Brown. And that is race is only used as an instrument of power. Right? And that's what Will's talking about this. Climate change is used by the principles as a means to power. Right? Nobody gives nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody's gonna burn it down over the uh over the over the you know over the climate um and i would i would offer you this uh it's a great misnomer in the united states that most people think that when you recycle as a community you know you make you save money you make you do not you know most communities have to truck their recyclables someplace to be dealt with and that costs a lot of money i know as a community um you'll enjoy this so I'm running for city council while I'm on active duty, which is against the UCMJ. I did not know that. And uh, <laughs> I went in and asked Larry Nicholson, do you care if I put my name in the hat in my, in my hometown to run for city council? When I go home, I can, I'll be on city council. He goes, no, I said, I think it's a great idea. Didn't occur to me really to check with the SJA. It's not really how I live my life, but it, it was, it was ignorance. And so, I'm participating in a uh, in a town hall. I'm running against five other guys. Four other guys. There's five of us running total. I ultimately will crush them in the election. Okay, but they set me up. I, I'm you know I'm off work and I get up in the middle of the day to participate in a town hall with them in my ward. You know, and it's going to be televised in the community. Right. Major McNamara is participating from Iraq. Right. And uh, so the first question of the debate is this. Major McNamara, this question is specifically for you. Right. And they set me up being politics, being what it is. Will you guarantee the citizens of Ward 2 that you will not mobilize uh, and uh, and uh, as a Marine and go back to fight if you're elected. And I said, absolutely not. If the, that's the pretext under which you would vote for me, do not vote for me. You know, serving in the Marine Corps, you know, even over here fighting for my country is one of the greatest experiences of my life. And if my, you know, if I were to be called again, I would never turn my back on my country. So if that's why you would vote for me, though... And then these guys said they were sitting in the room. He said, it looked like somebody shoved a grapefruit up these guys' ass when you answered like that. And then uh, and the guy said, it was awesome, though. And then they, they asked, like, um, how green would you be if you were elected? And that was one. And I went last on this question. I said, well, first of all, everybody needs to know, of all the planets I've ever lived on, Earth is my favorite, okay? And I'm as green as any guy out there. I mean, hell, I'm a Notre Dame guy. Okay, now my question to you is, um, can I raise your taxes to be green? Are you okay with that? And I know the answer to that. It's no. Okay, so where do you want me to be relative to green, relative to lowering your taxes, paying for the schools, paving roads, all those higher priorities, and then being green? So in, in... in uh, in accord with that prioritization, do you know that we paid to recycle? We have to truck all of our stuff down to the Twin Cities. Most people do not know that. So commensurate with our ability to be green, I'm happy to be green. 
but I won't be green to raise your taxes, and I won't be green to step in front of those other priorities. I hope that satisfies the they're like, oh, man. But most people don't know that, right? Green costs money. It, you, it's not like you take your bottles like when we were kids, right? You take all those bottles back, you get some change, and you go buy an icy. It's not like that anymore. And people don't know that. But this, to me, I thought was common knowledge. William dissuaded me of that because it's not the narrative. But it's, it's, an, it's an absolute joke. You look at what the United States does for the environment. Right. You look at the water off the coast of California. It's absolutely gorgeous. And you look at you look at uh, if you grew up in Southern California, the air is clear. It's very it, it takes an inversion layer and it takes many, many days for Los Angeles to get smoggy. Right. Right. You, they walk around with masks in, in, in Beijing for days. You know, because the air is so, so unhealthy. So I just think this stuff is a joke. But really, to me, the major threat to to the universe is the is the union of big technology and media that when you look at somebody and tell them that they would look at Will like, oh, just back from the Capitol. Are you William? You're one of those guys. That's what I, I mean. Like, there's no way this could be true. It's just stupid. I, I, I don't know what else to say. Now, Jeffrey, let me cede the floor to you and your garage band. And what say ye to all of that? <laughs> yeah, just pretend it's, it's accompaniment to my jewels I'm about to drop. <laughs> well, I would say this. Um, oh, well, let know, me just tell you, speaking of which... Otto Preminger got involved in producing the program, and before we came on, I, now I can't even remember what Jeff said, but it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I can't remember either. And that's surprising. <laughs> but uh, let me see. How I dredge it up. Well, you know, the uh, this is the first time in our history we've had threats before our history to freedom of speech and you know to uh, corrupt business people and to you know overbearing government. But never in our history, I don't think, has all of them, all like big, like now the, the new thing is big tech, big tech, big business, um, the government, media, and I'm talking about both houses of government. Mm-hmm. You know, both. The, the, they're in it for the uh, for the for the money, I think, and the, the riches gain. They can't stand the idea that we would actually try to exercise our government the way it was intended when they wrote the Constitution and the amendments. The truth is, uh, you know, our government is designed so that people don't have to think about it that much because uh, it's designed so that, uh, you know, that the government is full of rules of what they can't do to us. All those amendments. And Barack Obama, you know, one of his bitches, as a constitutional lawyer, of course, from Harvard, you know, one of his bitches was... There's nothing but negative rights in the Constitution. In other words, things the government can't do to us. They gotta let us have, you know, our our, our guns. They they got they can't restrict our freedom of speech. We got the right to counsel. You know, there's there's a these are all about things they can't do to us. But uh, you know, the idea of when you say you let's have some positive rights, like they have a right to health care and they have a right to you know a decent house. They have a right to, a, you know, a, 
they don't have to work, you know, for a, a minimum type wage. You know, we should have universal income. All those things that you're going to give people if you're the government, it's a, it's a canard because the government doesn't produce anything by itself unless they take it from portions of their citizens. So they take it from one and they give it to another. And the whole thing is a, it's a thievery. And they've never been able to do the whole thing uh, because there's always been pieces of the government and pieces of society that have been at odds with each other. And, and for the first frightening time, we have the least of that, where people will stand up and say, you know, this can't stand. Right now, you can't depend on the news media. You can't depend on, uh, you know, social media, of course, because it's owned by these big tech guys. The government, the regular media, anything. Everybody is against the average citizen. You're going to pay and you're going to shut up. If you don't shut up, we're going to shut you up. And that's uh, we're kind of in a frightening time for that right now, in my opinion. All right, I want to switch gears. Um, the other story, Will's kind of like the intellectual savant of the evening. And uh, <laughs> we're talking about SecDef is making some headlines, right? Uh, uh, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. Um, let's talk about that, William. Yeah, so, you know, and this, you know, it's the narrative. Uh, Defense Secretary is going to direct a military-wide stand-down to address extremism within the ranks, he told military leaders on Wednesday. So he's going to have a stand-down in the next 60 days, operational pause, so people can talk about extremism in the ranks. Um, What we saw on January 6th woke people up supposedly. And so he's out there with a part of the narrative, but the interesting thing is um, he doesn't, it it says in here that his spokesman said he has yet to determine how the stand downs are going to be completed. So he puts out in the headline that this is one of the most important things going on and we need to stop doing what we're doing to talk about it. But I really don't know what, how we're going to do it and what we're going to talk about. Um, the idea that that violent extremists within the military are the greatest threat to what's going on and DOD's ability to accomplish its mission, it's nothing but throwing dust in people's eyes. Um, China isn't threatening us. Russia's not threatening us. People having nuclear weapons pointed at us is not threatening us. But violent extremism in the ranks is what's threatening us. Um, bizarre. Either that, or I am so far away from what the active duty military is, and that it's changed so dramatically in the last seven and a half years. Um, but it's it's just comical to me that the SecDef comes in, says this is the more, most important thing we're going to do. We're going to do it, but I really don't know how we're going to do it. Um, that gives me great confidence and the people that are defending our nation out there uh, today. Uh, yeah. You know, the other thing I note in here, his spokesman is a guy named Kirby. I know that oh, that guy. Me. So Kirby was Mullen's spokesperson uh, when Mullen was CNO, and he brought him down to the joint staff. He eventually went to the State Department, and now he's back as Austin's. So, so here you have a retired two-star admiral as a spokesperson and a retired four-star general doing an, 
phenomenally overtly political act. And people talk about we need to depoliticize the military. Well, if you're a senator, congressman, president of any time in the future, why would you look at any flag officer and think that they're not overtly political? These guys obviously had significant political leanings, which they exercised on their absolute first opportunity uh, to do it. They didn't come by these ideas the day after they put the, took the uniform off. And the idea that they didn't have these ideas and act on them while they were in uniform is utterly ridiculous. Uh, so this continues to break down, in my mind, that civilian-military sort of relationship and trust continues to politicize the military. And are you going to be the battalion commander that stands up and says, yep, we do the outpause, we ran a microscope up everybody's ass, and we couldn't find a violent extremist uh, anywhere here? Or the only violent extremists are fill in the blank, not KKK, not Proud Boys, not any of that stuff, but uh, we found a couple of Antifa guys in the battalion. Are you kidding me? There ain't anyone going to stand up and say that. This is pretty clear what it's supposed to produce, who's supposed to produce it. Um, but it's also just, God damn, I hope they're not going to do a nuclear weapons review. You know, we're going to stand down to review our nuclear weapons in the next 60 days. But we really don't know how we're going to accomplish that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're finally like the other countries. Their biggest fear is their own citizenry. Right yeah, now, we're fourteen the days came in. Right. Yeah, we're fourteen, 14 days. days. Scared, scared of the right, scared of the population of, of uh, America. Yeah, well, you, their you, biggest threat. You saw the inauguration, right? We look like a third world country bringing like the military into the capital so we can execute this event, yeah. right? Yeah, and I'll tell you, when you saw those pictures of the National Guard. What percentage of those pictures did those guardsmen have their weapons? Not tiny, less than yeah. 5%. And I looked hard. I saw one guardsman with a rifle and a magazine one time. Most of the National Guardsmen I saw did not have weapons. Whoa. So, again, it's the narrative. We need them terribly, but we actually don't need them armed. You know, they could have called on the... Uh, the Boy Scouts to do what the National Guard did and probably look better in uniform. At least they wouldn't have been fat. Whoa, yeah. whoa. Where did that come from? You were being I, affable. I saw the pictures. I saw the pictures. <laughs> I don't I think I don't think you need to word use the word fat though, honestly. I think you use another word for that. Robust. Robust. Bul bulky. Food blister. <laughs> The fighting food blisters are the 47 best <laughs> food blister. The fighting lard asses of uh, <laughs> Ronnie Lee Step continues to haunt the program. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, I drove by Camp Geiger today. I thought of you guys. I made the sign of the cross. Just so you know. Mm. Yeah. The Edge Marines. The, I'll tell you what, it's a great facility, too. What are we going to, what's the Marine Corps going to do with it? Not that I want to leave. Eighth Marines isn't there, you know. No, we didn't. SOI. Yeah, we'll SOI go old school. ITS was uh, there. Right. I was there. ITR. 
<laughs> so, yeah. where's Eighth Marines if they're not at Geiger? They're over at Mainside. They're over at Mainside since 1990. Yeah, we went over there. Yeah, we we were over wow. when we came back from float. We were all stuck over there up yeah, the eighty nine, man. Yeah, eighty nine. Yeah, SOI moved up into those big buildings. We SOI or ITS when we were there was in the uh, the barracks that had built in like nineteen forty six, and Eighth Marines was in the new barracks that had built like in the sixties. So uh, well, never we, mind then. You know, never we mind. Oh, said, so that, thought we were in the ghetto. It increased, it increased the volume of fistfights in the brown bagger because all the Ace Marines guys used to go to uh, Toby's outside the Geiger Gate. And uh, so now they, it's too far to go. So they could thumb the get on Swoop Circle and go over to uh, the brown bagger easier. <laughs> in the good old days. In the good old days. The... Um... Jeff, you have any, what's the other thing that, that the Secretary of Defense did? He purged all the advisory boards, right? Yeah. That's not a surprise, mm-hmm. though. That's uh, everybody, everybody saw that coming. Well, That's a political again, thing, a normal political thing, yes? Uh, this is interesting in that this is what you're supposed to do when right. you take over. But you know what? Donald Trump didn't do any of that, and he paid right. a big price for it. Exactly. But, you know, every political appointee should be ordered to tender their resignation on January 20th. Mm-hmm. That's Machiavelli, man. You fire if you're going to fire a lot of people, do it all at once, and then uh, and then don't do any more. You know, but make sure you fire. If when in doubt, fire somebody, and then if it's necessary or if it's appropriate, hire them back. But uh, when you just fire people bits at a time, like President Trump did. It causes uh, it causes more uh, discontent and resentment. And he was trying to be fair, give people a chance. I'm a huge way, I'm is, a huge believer in firing. I think it's yeah, also, I think it's an important thing to do. Think of the people that he hired. You know, General Mattis yeah. wanted to be seen as the guy that's above politics. But let me tell you something: when you become the Secretary of Defense, you're a partisan. You're not about mm-hmm. politics, and you better get in there and play a sharp, elbowed political game, or you're not serving the guy that appointed you to a political position. And yeah, but General Mattis, is, he's always been political. I mean, he was a Wolfowitz guy and all of that, but I mean, and, he appears— And he, that was part of his, his right. politics when he became the sec def to not be the political guy. That's how he enhanced his own— you know, prestige and reputation, as opposed to doing the job that he was supposed to do, which is go in there, clean house, and put people in a position that support the president's agenda. That's your job as a political political appointee. Right. And if you don't want that job, then don't take it. Lloyd you Austin, know, like he knew it. But again, but yeah, only can, compare. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, compare them to uh, like General Conway. You know, the guy who's the uh, the officer in charge of the advisory training branch now, Lieutenant Colonel, he was an instructor at EWS, first working for, for Dave Furness and then working for uh, Frank Donovan. And he had to get, they said, try and get, uh, call General Conway and people and see if he can get them to come be a speaker. So he calls a number for, for General uh, Conway's people, and he gets General Conway. And he says, when do you want me? <laughs> says, well, sir, when's convenient for you? They go back and forth with that. And Conway says, look, if I don't come and talk to you guys, 
I'm going to go out and try and shoot a deer or catch a fish. And, uh, and I do that every day. And he goes, so if you, so basically Conway drove himself down there, did this, he had no desire to, um, you know, to say, sir, you're going to, you know, will, will you ever, you know, he goes, no, I'm done. I was the military guy and I'm not now. So it's either shooting a deer or catching a fish or, you know, speaking to the, uh, the EWS student, you know, and then like the guy who I didn't think much of until I really st- sat back and reflected our marvelous performance in Iraq and Afghanistan, General Natowski. I watched a guy for like three days and I was there with Colonel Greenwood on our ill-advised two-man PDSS in 2004 during Fallujah. I thought, this guy I like to work for, you know what I mean? I mean, Joe Latwell was a three, um, 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 damn, uh, George, Br- was, uh, George Bristol, George Bristol. Bristol. Yeah. You know, and they're all there stuck in the theater at, uh, at Camp Fallujah, you know? And I just thought the guy was, uh, you know, he was co- totally concerned out there every day, checking on the Marines and stuff like that. And not really worried about, uh, according to Joe Latwell, not worried about, uh, you know, appearances and, you know, little squabbles with other generals and shit like that. Hey, can I tell a story about the Fallujah Theater at Camp, the theater at Camp Fallujah? Of course sure. you can. Yeah, yeah I know, here's Matt, a, you're the boss. Here's a great one. So, uh, you know, we were way out in the West, and uh, they hung those three guys, and so the first battle of Fallujah kicks off. And uh, first LER goes... Okay, hold in. on, hold on, hold on. Just so, just... Um, the contractors at the bridge, right? That whole event is what yeah. Will just said. Then right. they—that's they, April first, yeah. first week in April of two thousand four. I have a great picture. I'm I'm sure you guys have seen it after. Um, guys from three five wrote it. This is the bridge where they hung, you know, uh, Blackwater contractors. Fuck you. Right. <laughs> it's a great. Yeah. It's a great picture. So we uh, we took the whole battalion out of the West and went to Fallujah. And uh, basically, we backfilled all the battle space for all the infantry battalions who'd been in and around Fallujah that were going into the city. And uh, so we were on the road for a good two weeks and change, living in the field, uh, trying to fill three, four battalions worth of battle space. And we pull into Camp Fallujah uh, late one night. And the facility they had for us was the parking lot. So that was our that was our bivouac facility. And the next day, uh, some of my guys found this theater and moved a COC in there, brought a uh, C-squared, hooked up power, did all that. And uh, well done. That night, that night, the camp took like a big volley of 122 rockets. And. Uh, <laughs> A couple of CBs got killed, I think. And uh, so the next night, uh, I'm in that that theater. And uh, so my bivouac was, I laid out my bedroll right outside the COC. Uh, My sergeant major was one step down in that theater for me. And some of the comm guys were in there and people running that. And uh, we go out, we got back in at like 2.30 in the morning. And uh, I'm laying there. Uh, and just fall asleep, and uh, Sergeant Major comes over to wake me up. Sir, you got to hear this one. Uh, all right, Sergeant Major, what's going on? Some, somebody hurt, you know? 
uh, something happened, you know, the guy that come watch didn't wake me up, what's going on? So there's two uh, soldiers, I'm pretty sure soldiers, might have been Marines, I don't even remember, stand there. Uh, Sir, you can't sleep inside the theater. Uh, Why not? Well, there's pigeons in here. And uh, the pigeon shit is going to be toxic, so no one's allowed to sleep in here. And I'm thinking, this is the first solid roof that I've had over my head in uh, probably six weeks. And this camp just took rockets last night, which killed five CBs. And people are worrying about being poisoned from pigeon shit. Oh, the yeah. Well, they laughed, hey, they laughed about burn pits too, Will. And look where they're at well, now. I just said. Uh-huh. I you're, said that, uh, you're that I'll, guy. Uh, I'll take the chance. I will. Uh, I'll risk pigeon shit to avoid 122 <laughs> incoming uh i'll roll the, I'll I'll roll the, i think that was wrong with me last week i'll <laughs> roll the dice on pigeon shit <laughs> yeah there i was i'm in a bad movie once again you know <laughs> there's two guys running around in fallujah camp fallujah in april when oh we got plenty why, of hey why don't you think that environmental impact is a there combat is a combat MOS? Oh, you, you just go. you think it's just Don't a peace? Here, yeah. <laughs> you think it's just a peacetime thing? There you go. I I, I hope bird dead. Wait. So what did you? What was your response after you received that? You never elaborate on your exact response to that. I said, "Hey, thanks." That was it. <laughs> That's all you gotta say when you're the battalion commander of First LAR. <laughs> I forgot the separate battalions carrying the, the blue diamond. <laughs> wow, wow. I I think the sergeant major had fired these guys up a little bit because they were a little tentative in talking to me, and they spurred <laughs> away pretty quickly. So, can you imagine how much they hated their job? Oh. Like in the midst of all that, right? We've got to go be those guys. It's your battalion commander here, right? Yeah. I, I wondered who were the guys that were handing out towels at the gym. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, there they were. There they were. So, I have a question. Um, and we're not going to go very long tonight. Um, but I have a question for each of you. Uh, name somebody um, that you admire. That you don't know personally, but you admire. I know that's not an easy question. I don't know them personally, but I, but I admire. Oh, there's a client piece again. And that's exciting. Um, I got one. If you want me to go, that way you can think, Jeff. Unless you got. Yeah, I can smell the smoke burning from the Kenny residence. So go ahead, Will. That's <laughs> right. A guy, a guy that I admire that I don't know personally that's, you know, known is uh, Tom Cotton. Um, you know, Harvard Law School graduate, 9-11 hits, and he joins the Army and uh, serves as an officer and uh, then goes back to Arkansas and becomes a congressman and now a senator. And uh, he appears to be as a principled guy as you can be up there. And I've seen him... Uh, on Senate Armed Services Committee when uh, they do the uh, hearings for the four stars. 
uh, and the guy appears to be engaged uh, you know, on both sides in a thoughtful way. And, uh, you know, he seems to be a guy that's, uh, he has those military values and, and believes in him and he believes in the country. And uh, he put his own skin right in the game when uh, you know, not a whole lot of people were up there now, more now. Uh, but a guy from how many Harvard Law graduates decided to join the Army? Because of 9-11. Um, not very many. So I do, I admire the guy. Got it. All right. I just muted Jeffrey, so he, he'll have to unmute himself. But uh, um, Jeff, you? Somebody you don't know but you admire. Yeah, I'd have to say, well, in the political realm there. No, it doesn't have um, to be political. Will went there, but you don't have to go there. It's not mandatory. Well, I, I tell you right now, the guy I really admire, I admire more and more the more I hear him is uh, Denzel Washington, the actor, because um, he, you know, he never says anything stupid like a lot of actors do. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, first of all, he's a great actor. You know, he, he's really professional, but he's, uh, he refuses to, to, you know, follow along with the whole, you know, woke business and everything like that. He admires law enforcement. He admires, uh, you know, uh, military you know, just because they're deciding that it's all voluntary, that stuff nowadays. Nobody's drafted anymore. And he, uh, I heard him talk about it. He's, uh, you know, his poise and everything, his bearing is admirable to me. Yeah, you know, my, my instinct is to say, as somebody I don't know who I admire is, uh, is Elizabeth Smart, because when I, when I come do post-traumatic winning like this and I do it, um, you know, three times a day, four days in a row, or three days in a row. Um, I watch these clips, and um, you know, and I think about you know to be raped like for nine months as a fourteen-year-old girl, um, uh, and then to do what she's done um, with her life uh, to me is is uh, is pretty amazing. I feel the same way about. Uh, I see Admiral Stockdale, you know, every time I do that. And, uh, you know, we were talking the other day about is has there ever been a more nuanced leader for a more nuanced situation in history? And, you know, and again, I, Stockdale is, is, you know, in his understanding of Stoic philosophy and, and which allowed him to lead um, in in uh, in Vietnam Um is another guy who you look at and say, "Wow!" I had dinner last week with the uh, the captain, uh, prior enlisted guy. Of uh, he's the uh, he's the commanding officer of the uh, naval hospital at Cherry Point. Uh, he met Stockdale. Stockdale commissioned him, and he used to go to Stockdale's house in Coronado. And he just talked about what a great what a great guy and I was like oh my god are you kidding me and he's the one that left a bracelet a Stockdale POW bracelet on my equipment a year ago Uh, he saw the thing once during the day he came back that night and saw it a second time he leaves his bracelet on my on my stuff and and left and never introduced himself and I was talking about it finally he reached out to me and he said hey you're talking about me let me introduce myself but he's just a just a great guy but I mean and the way he, the reverence he speaks with Admiral Stockdale um, is is truly 
truly astounding to lead like that. And, uh, and uh, I don't know. I wish I had, you know, Will's contemporary one with uh, Tom Cotton. I wish I uh, had somebody like that, that that is coming to mind. Um, Shelby Steele a little bit, I feel like that too, because his narrative is so counter you know, it's so counter. And if you have not watched What Killed Michael Brown, I think it's What Killed Michael Brown or Who Killed Michael Brown. I think it's What, though. Um, you, you should watch it because it is just incredibly well done. You know, he talks about his family. His father was uh, a descendant from slaves in Kentucky. Uh, he, His father's a truck driver. They moved to Illinois. He and his brother... You know, both become PhDs. He is Stanford guys. Brothers like the assist number two guy at Cal. I mean, so I don't care where you come from. I mean, that's a pretty good ride. And you know, they were uh, their sons uh, of uh, you know their their grandparents were slaves in this country. And and I mean, but his narrative is, uh, you know, I, I cited a little bit earlier that race is only used as a means to power. And he talks about, you know, this whole concept of white guilt in America is hurting the black community because we won't say to them what we say to every other race. Yeah, work your way out of that shit. Somehow or other, we keep promising black America that we will rescue them. And by that promise and, and through that belief, we keep them impoverished because they don't come to the conclusion that the only way out is, is to educate and work our way out of it, to not get pregnant, to adopt the behaviors that other cultures do when they get the hell out of these places. And that's not a very popular narrative these days. And so to me, I, it's, a, it's no small act of courage. So uh, I'm into courage these days. I like courage. I'm a fan of it. I know you guys aren't, but I... Uh... It's, the, it's the most admirable um, altruistic trait. Because it goes against your most basic, uh, your most basic instinct, self-preservation, and especially physical courage is the first one that comes to mind. But more profoundly, moral courage. But physical courage, the one thing that unifies everybody is terror of death. Um, your, your instinct is to be terrified of death. So to act and to contravene that is something that we all, you know, that, that everyone, all cultures admire. And then the moral courage thing, I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking Tom Cotton, we're talking Denzel Washington, and we're talking Shelby Steele. We're talking about moral courage, which is, uh, you know, a profound and rare thing, you know, a rare thing, particularly, it seems, now. Well, especially when it involves the truth, and, and we all see on a daily yeah. basis, of the, you know, and, and Will, you know, his data, and I'll include the chart in this post so you can see it. It's laughable. It's laughable, and that is com- not is completely not the narrative. Speaking of courage, uh, can we track down Jeff? Can you track down Captain Johnson from Beirut? You know, I, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I had Mike Ratliff's kid working for me, uh, 2013, 2014. He was a corporal, um, so I think I got Mike Ratliff's number. I'll try and call him and see if. Uh, he would, if anyone would, he would probably have, uh, you know, Johnson's uh, info. I haven't talked to Captain. Ra- I feel I, I love the guy, but it's like with Gunny Step. 
I didn't get a hold of the guy for like 15 years, and then he died. Oh man! So I'm feeling shit about that. So I, I guess I should get off my ass. I interviewed. I, I inter- Will Will might have been in contact with him. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, now you're making me feel bad because I haven't talked to him. Um, more than 20 years, and that yeah. that guy had as much influence on me as anyone in the Marine Corps. Yeah, wow. exactly. You know, I so, I, I yeah, interviewed we're both a couple of gavos. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Whatever that means, I agree. The um, I interviewed a guy. It's a completely impromptu interview. I I I did, and it's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done in my life. Uh, I was looking for somebody who who was at Normandy, right? And one of the cool things about you know doing radio in a relatively small town is there's people that were at all these events. They're in your town. You just don't know it. And you start poking around. Hey, does anybody know anybody who was at Pearl Harbor? Oh yeah, Agnes sure was. What? Yeah, she's from Botno, North Dakota, middle of North Dakota, up by the Canadian border. She's on the USS Solus, parked off Ford uh-huh. Island, right aft of the Arizona. Right next to the Arizona, yeah. Right, when that morning starts. And she, the only way she was getting out of Botno, North Dakota, is if her parents knew that they, she was safe. <laughs> And she wanted to be a nurse, so she figured if she joined the Navy, right? And you meet, right, you meet these people. So I go in there, and I couldn't find anybody because, you know, in the Midwest, right, when, the, uh, when Memorial Day rolls around, everybody goes to the lake. Like, it's a singular event. Where are they? They're at the lake. Is there only one of them? No, there's like a gazillion of them in the region, but that's what everybody says. So everybody I track down is at the lake and I go on the air and I say hey I'm looking for somebody and this woman calls when well, my father was there so I called down she, he said she said he's in a list in a, a list he's in an assisted living facility and uh, I'm sure he would like to do it so I called down and his name's Harris Holman and I'm talking to him to make sure that you know mentally that he could do it and, uh, and so I'm hanging the phone up because I'm doing this during a commercial break and I've got to run back to the studio and call him back and get him on the studio line. So um, right before I get off the phone, I said, Harris, can you give me your rank and what unit you were with? He said, I was a sergeant or a staff sergeant, one of the two. Um, I was a squad leader with the 75th Infantry Regiment. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And I'm like, go feel bear. Go feel bear. And so I'm like, all right. And I hang the phone up and I'm running down the hall. <laughs> I, I, I'm running down the hall and I'm thinking, that's the Rangers, right? And I'm like, <laughs> did this guy go up Point to Hawk? And bigger than shit, he did. And this interview is me just completely geeking out talking to this guy right how did you you know what did you how did you get up what did you do like we went up there with grenades and our rifles it was, the whole thing completely based on surprise and I said well you know I read that once you guys got up there that you had trouble orienting he goes oh yeah he said and he speaks with this thick thick Norwegian accent right and um, he says everything was rearranged 
Nothing was there anymore. There was nothing that we could reorient ourselves. Then he talks about meeting Patton. He said Patton liked me. He could, and, and he's speaking with a very thick, still to this day, Norwegian accent, brogue, I think they call it. Or and so he uh, he says, you know, back then I used to speak the Norwegian, you know. <laughs> it's so funny. And I and in the interview, I asked him. I said, you don't mind if someday I come down and visit you. Um, I would love to see your medals and your pack. And he said, I have all of it. I would love to show you. I go to Iraq and he dies while I'm in Iraq. And I've like, like Jeff just said, I felt, I felt like shit ever since then. And I never, whenever have that, I need to go see somebody. I get that done. And because of, of that incident. And the next guy is I've got to go visit is Jack Riley, who's been on this program, squad leader for, right. you know, India Company, 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines. I think the most decorated fight in Marine Corps history. But the, one of the great parts, you guys haven't seen post-traumatic winning in a while, but um, I talk about don't fake it. And then I and I have this fake Kanye West quote, right? The truth lands with a thud and needs no salesman. And I attribute to Kanye West, but I made it up. Well, the quote comes to me when I'm interviewing Jack Riley. You know, he's talking about this fight at Getland's Corner. Then he comes home and he gets two phone calls, one from the VA telling him, you were in this thing called Agent Orange, right? You know, do, are you married? Yes. Has your wife miscarried? Oh, yeah, three times. Do you have kids? Yes. Do they have, have did, did they have any birth defects? Yeah. Both of them have a form of a form of spina bifida. And so, yeah. yeah. And so Jack's just telling this, these stories and then he gets a second phone call from the VA. You served at Camp Lejeune, right? Yeah. I was a two eight when I came back. Well, yeah, there was shit in the water and you've got it in your body. And all this guy has ever done, right, has been the squad leader for second platoon, second squad, and then the company squad leader putting together the first reunions when you had to ride away and get DOS discs of phone books. And that's how he that's how he found guys, you know, across the country. And, and so this Kanye West quote comes to me. And so when I talk about, you, you know, don't fake it, I play Jack Riley's voice and he's from Alabama and he's every guy there. And then the next commandment is, um, when, when I play, when I say don't fake it, then I show the video from Gene Sledge from the movie, uh, from the series Pacific where he breaks down when he's going hunt with his dad and he collapses, he has a panic attack. The next commandment is you've got to talk about it. I then play a conversation between Jack Riley and I where he's relating a conversation with Gene Sledge where he meets Sledge, they're both Alabama guys, at a Chamber of Commerce event. And they're talking. He says, Sledge is all over me about he wants to know about Vietnam tactically. What do they do? How do they do this? And then he looks at me and says, have you talked to your wife about this? And, and Jack says, no, God, no, I haven't. And Sledge looks at him and says, you have to tell your wife this stuff. And I, and I tell one of the things I, I, I now talk about is this traumatic wisdom is handed da- down through generations of Marines. I was just really lucky that day that my gunny was there when he looked at me and said, you know, you're never going to get over this. But it's, you know, it's anyway, it's guys like that. And I have the same regret that Jeff has. And you meet these guys and they're pieces of American history. 
They are the best this country has to offer. And then they go home and they go back to work and they raise families and they do their thing. So, yeah, so don't, you don't want to live with that one. Okay, final words, Will? You've been so pro- um, you've been so profound yeah. tonight. Yeah, well, here's a profound one for you. I'm I'm hoping I can get out of the driveway tomorrow. So that's not <laughs> profound. We have had we have not. had the snowmageddon. <laughs> actually, if you can get out of your driveway, you can get around town pretty easily. It's just that getting out of that driveway after the snowplow has gone through and put a four foot barrier up at the end of the road. What kind of snowplow does your dad have? No, 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 no. Yeah, my dad doesn't have a snowplow. He's 85. So what do you do? What do you do? You get a guy with a truck who comes and plows your driveway out. Well, where's that guy? He's he's, he's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Jeff, anything profound as we close this epic uh, hour? I'm more fortunate than Will because I'm not allowed to park in my driveway. (laughs) So... I, I'm on the road. Of course, it's 52 degrees when I leave in the morning, so, you know. But uh, I remember those days in Connecticut. We had we got snowed in. One time we had an ice storm, um, just nothing but ice. And it was it weighed the trees so heavy, they fell on the uh, power lines. On the power lines, and we were out of power. It was misery, man. Thinking, holy sh! In this fucking day and age, you know, we're like. Uh, it was like uh, we were like the Neanderthals. We ran out of uh, you know bites to eat. And stuff, you know? Holy shit! But um, yeah, no. That's, the weather up the, in the northeast or in the north in general is just no joke. Speaking of uh, of being you know having a snowplow um, come and stack your, tr- your 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 driveway, I when I came home from Fallujah in my second deployment. I get a phone call from a lady, and she's she says, "Is this Mike McNamara?" And I said, "It is." She says, "You're my alderman." I said, "Well, hi. How are you? What's your name?" You know, I'm Edna Kenny. Hi, Edna. How are you? That wasn't her name, but I mean, that's you know. And I, I said, I said, "How can I help you?" She said, "Well, my husband has a heart condition, and we have a doctor's appointment." And the snowplow just came through, and it stacked like four feet of snow and ice in front of my driveway, and I can't get out, and I need to take my husband to the hospital. It's like, so what do you do? You're the alderman. What do you do? I said, hey, I'll be right over. I'll bring my son Patrick and I. We'll bring our snowblower, and we'll blast a hole through that, and you'll get too. She said, well, you – I said, no, no, no. I'm, it's fine. We'll be over there. So we take we take the snowblower. We throw it in the back of the truck, Patrick and I. And uh, we go over to her house. And I shot the shit in the, in the garage while Patrick blew a hole in the uh, – in the. Uh, but but that's no joke. I mean, serious stuff. I mean, you can imagine if you're yeah. – and, and again, when you're talking about the kind of snow Will is talking about, that thing might be four feet tall. But it's like, what, four or six feet wide. And you're not. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people that said, why can't Will just shovel it? Oh. <laughs> Once a plow plows you in, man. That's Here's a profound one for you. China. You, can, you can end with a quote. I, I, I think I paraphrased, but it's something about uh, 
the key to happiness is freedom and the key to freedom is courage so be courageous yeah. where did that come from yeah. is that did you make that know. up no I stole, left, <laughs> I stole it a few months ago <laughs> i stole it a few months ago and how many people are, are are courageous enough to be free and if you're not free you won't be happy hey i and have one are, more thing that i would offer you i spent this uh, this late afternoon and evening went to dinner with two different marines and um and both of them had seen the presentation and they both reached out to me and so i um i met one at the chapel where i'm doing post-traumatic winning post-traumatic winning has a fair amount of profanity in it but not right now because there's like a 90 foot um cross in the chapel at uh at uh what do we call it new river right and i'm conscious yeah. right the chapel adjacent to camp geiger all the different marines that have laid in state you know lied and stayed in that chapel and been buried out there so i have curtailed my profanity um and but uh, my point is this we desperately need leaders that will look at young people who don't have mental illnesses who are getting their ass kicked by life because they've gone they've had shitty parenting and, and, and an education system that won't hold them accountable that won't make them face consequences won't make them learn to overcome adversity by tightening your belt accepting responsibility and say I'll outwork this shit they don't know how to do that and they desperately need people like us to put their hand on our hand on their shoulder and look at them and say hey you could do this there's nothing wrong with you. Life's just kicking your ass, and we'll show you how. And I just want to encourage everybody to do that. Because these guys, all they need was somebody to say that. Somebody say, I believe in you. You can do it. I will show you. Here's the plan. And anytime you need to talk to me, pick up the phone and call. And the difference is, 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 is absolutely amazing. And, and, and what we do with them is we send them to mental health people that don't help them. And this is, these aren't my words. These are their words. And so sitting in your class, holy smokes, I've never heard anything like that. So I just want to just, I want to fortify everybody and tell them there's so many young people that need that kind of wisdom and to get out there and, 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 and do that and because um, they can do it. They just don't, they've never, a lot of them never been challenged. They've, they've just been coddled their whole life. And so to fortify them so they can act with courage and keeping with the world's quote um, is a good thing, is a good thing. Give him a little Jeff Kenny, a little spine stiffening. And uh, <laughs> no, but it's important. And I mean, and Jeff yeah. and I have been working with uh, with somebody, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of that in, in, in what Jeff and I are doing for somebody. And yeah. right. Yeah. And it's uh, it's it's the most rewarding work you'll ever do in your life to see somebody. Right. Begin to I don't want to say figure it out, but begin to n- n- navigate life. Um, well, and so, so anyway, all right, boys, all right. thoroughly enjoyable. Good luck tomorrow with the, uh, with the berm. Well, with the snow berm. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, one question, Mac, Mac, when will the, uh, I talked to Mike Etor and he was asking when the podcast we did yesterday, will that be on, was that posted today or? Yeah, it's on right now. About Ace Marine? All Mar- okay. the, the All Marine Re- the All Marine Radio Hour. Two former Eighth Marine Regiment Marines, 
Jeff and Will talk about the regiment as it's deactivated. How about that? That's, that's an epic it's an epic title. And then we have the crest of the 8th Marine Regiment, along with a picture of the colors being rolled for the final time. Until that date comes, and it will come in the future, when it is unfurled and the regiment will be reactivated. Yep. All right. Jeff, have a good night. You too. See you later, Will. There you have it. Jeff Kenny and... Uh, his better half, William Constantini here. So uh, that'll do it on a uh, Thursday. Again, a show about nothing here on a Thursday morning. But I hope you find it enjoyable. Um, I don't have the time right now to keep up with current events. Will is uh, is doing that for me, and I certainly appreciate that. And, uh, and I always appreciate the conversation. <laughs> um, as I think you all do too. I mean, I have uh, great friends. They're smart, well-read, and uh, interesting, interesting guys. And I very much mean that about uh, don't be afraid to, you know, get after helping people, especially young people. Um, uh, Again, I'm... Like I said, I always joke, I'm the coolest guy I know because I have these experiences all the time, but look for them. Look for opportunities to, you know, sit down with people that are struggling and change their lives. It's the coolest thing you can do. So anyway, have a great Thursday. I think Greg Lotus and and Kim are going to be here tomorrow night, although I'm not sure. We might not have a new program on Friday because... I'm going to be out late Thursday. Um, Actually, I'm very excited. My driver, actually my vehicle commander when I was a company commander, Kevin Calhoun, he's going to come watch post-traumatic winning tomorrow afternoon, and then we'll go out to dinner. So I don't know if I'll be home to be able to do anything. If I can't, I'll hop on and do a a little segment. But uh, I haven't seen uh, Corporal Calhoun since 1994 I'm going to get a chance to see him again uh, 26 years later going on 27 so uh, I'm looking forward to that he's, he's a great Marine and a great guy and uh, I have a painting that he's an abstract painter now I have a painting that he's done uh, hanging in my house, a couple of his so, and everybody thinks I'm really cultured because I have abstract art in my house <laughs> And I say, I don't know what the hell it means. One of my Marines did it. I love it. So anyway. And then somebody asked me once, well, what's it mean to you? I said, what does it mean to me? Uh, it means that, uh, that I did something right. That he enjoyed his time under my command. And uh, that's what that means to me. Uh, so anyway. Yeah, I'll be doing that tomorrow along with post-traumatic winning three times. So should be a great day. Anyway, on this Thursday, have a great one. Don't be afraid to change somebody's life. I am out.